0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I'm very enthusiastic about the talk I'm going to share with you this morning. And I hope that at the end of this talk you will understand why I am choosing to generate and bring enthusiasm. This talk is about neuroscience, conflict and compassion. Mary Oliver, one of my favorite poets from House of Light, a poem entitled The Buddha's Last Instructions. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan strength with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two solid trees and he might have said anything knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward, it thickens and settles over the fields. Around him the villagers gathered and stretch forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs, detached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life, And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly I'm not needed, yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly beneath the branches he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. My mom, who's a good Southern Baptist, my dad was a Southern Baptist preacher. Several grandfathers before were Southern Baptist preachers, so you'll get sort of a combination (laughs) Buddhist-Southern Baptist preacher talk this morning. My mom is probably one of two Democrats in the First Baptist Church (laughs) of Charleston. And back in the '04 election, right before I was going to sit the three-month retreat at IMS, and she would say to me, you know, the Buddha's not God. And I'd say, that's true, Mother, I agree. And 30 minutes or an hour later, she'd say, you know, the Buddha's not God. And I'd say, I agree, Mother, no doubt. And we had that conversation in the midst of my sharing with her why I was doing something like that. And she said to me, I'm going to tell you something I've never told anybody. I was startled. Hmm, this sounds interesting. And I said, never anyone? She said, nope, never anyone. What is it, Mother? She said, I voted for John Kennedy. Now, some of you are old enough to know that people like my daddy, before the 1960 election, were preaching that if you voted for John Kennedy, you were electing the pope to run the country. And she said, I went into that polling booth, and I closed that curtain, and I voted for John Kennedy. And I said, you never told daddy? No way. (laughs) I never told anybody until just now. And knowing her heart and knowing her view of true Christianity and the true teachings of Jesus about caring for the poor, which seems to have been greatly perverted these days, in my view, I thought, you voted for him because you really liked what he stood for and all of his policies and proposals. She thought for a moment and said, nope, I voted for him because he was so cute. (laughs) Lately, as I watch what's happening in our country, I sometimes find myself in despair. And every day when I ride the bus home from the city, I talk to my mother for about 30 minutes. And she spends a little too much time watching TV, and she will often be in despair about what's happening. The level of discourse the incredible acerbic personal attacks that are going on, the violence around the world. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha. And I think about that song I learned in Sunday school, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And I'm in that place of despair where I don't feel much light. I've forgotten that this is the life Daniel was given to live at this time. So often, I find myself wanting to live a life that's different from the one I'm given to live. That's a fantasy life, the one that I should have lived the one that has various aspects to it that's probably similar in many ways to your fantasy life. It's a big hook and it's a fundamental choice that we all have to pay attention to and live the life we are given to live or stay stuck somewhere in the past or fantasizing about the future, the life that we should have, could have, would have, but for that life. This summer, I had the great privilege, mainly because I'm married to an extraordinary woman, she got invited to teach at the International Summer School of Business Mediation in Admont, Austria, a little town, town, village, really, in the Alps. And I got to go along and teach as well as her spouse. On the faculty with us was an extraordinary neuroscientist from the University of Frankfurt named Gerard Hutter. He has many books out. The only one published in English is this one, entitled The Compassionate Brain, How Empathy Creates Intelligence. Everything alive, everything alive, including human beings, faces a huge dilemma. We must stay open enough to gather into us what we need to nourish ourselves and take care of ourselves, and yet closed enough to prevent external disturbances from penetrating Our inner world and threatening the stability of our inner order. It's a constant, paradoxical way that we have to interact with not only the environment but with each other. Human beings, however, are unique. We have a brain, according to Dr. Hutter, that is not only designed to protect the stability of our inner order and our external interactions with the world. But it has the capacity, and listen very carefully to this, to break down interconnective neuronal circuits already established in the brain, repattern and restructure them and with them, the mental behavioral patterns that they determine, including unshakable pr- basic convictions and emotional patterns. It is because of this capacity that the human brain alone is capable of erasing and overriding already existing programs as soon as they begin to hamper the development of our mental and emotional potentialities. We can wipe out our hard drive and reprogram it. And that's exactly what the Buddha taught us how to do. We have extraordinary capabilities. And we're stuck, however, in an old Newtonian worldview where the brain that we got is the brain that we got. It's fixed. It's a machine. Like our bodies, like the world. And in that Newtonian view, I'm separate from you. And you're separate from me. And we can learn about external reality by breaking everything down into constituent parts and analyzing those parts. And in science, we've gotten down to smaller and smaller and smaller quarks of matter and sub-quarks, and I don't even know what they're all called, trying to understand us, and forgetting that in reality, science is learning we live in a quantum, interpenetrating, relational, connected, irrevocably connected world and reality. Our culture hasn't caught up. And most of us, unfortunately, individually, have not caught up in our communications and the way we deal with conflict. We are in a Newtonian reality. When I get mad at Dana, she's not me. And so I don't speak to her as if she were me. Of course, the good thing about that is being a mediator and a lawyer, if we were in a more quantum world, I'd probably be out of work. (laughs) In the Samagama Sutta, the Buddha taught the six roots of disputes. One of the young novice monks named Kunda Came to Ananda, the Buddha's constant companion and the the uh, his his brother. He memorized all the Buddha's teachings, and uh, based on Ananda's gifts to us, we have his teachings today. And this this famous teacher had died, and all of their all of his disciples were quote quarreling and brawling and in deep disputes, stabbing each other with verbal daggers, saying to each other, your way is wrong, my way is right. I am consistent, you are inconsistent. What should have been said first, you said last. What should have been last, said last, you said first. What you had carefully thought up has been turned inside out. Your assertion has been shown up. You are refuted, go and learn better or disentangle yourself as you can. None of us, of course, have ever said anything like that to anyone else. (laughs) I think it was just a couple of days ago that I did, now that I think about it. And the Buddha taught that there were these six roots of dispute. Now, this is 2,500 years ago. You would think that we had maybe made a little progress since then. But if you don't recognize any of these, please come up to me afterwards and tell me your secret. Number one, anger and resentment. Number two, contempt and insolence. Number three, enviousness and avariciousness. Number four, deceitfulness and fraudulence. Number five, evil wishes and wrong view. We still all together? These are all familiar to us. Good, good. Number six, adhering to our own views, holding on to them tenaciously and relinquishing them with difficulty. Now that last one I'm going to mostly focus on because that one is the one that literally destroys our brain. Holding, I'm sorry, adhering to our own views, holding on to them tenaciously, and relinquishing them with difficulty. In reality, our brains are plastic. They have plasticity. They can develop. And in fact, Dr. Hooter writes, nothing in the brain stays the way it is if the brain does not continue to be used in the same way. Now, let me read that again. Nothing in the brain stays the way it is if the brain does not continue to be used in the same way, adhering to our own views, holding on to them tenaciously and relinquishing them with difficulty. Do you hear the connection? If I stick firmly... To what I call my reality and my rightness and my view I'm creating what were known in the Buddha's times as samskaras grooves in my brain and my brain continues to go into those grooves and I continue to see things that way hear things that way and believe that you Are that way, whoever the you is in your life. I can't see you differently, I can't hear you differently or understand you differently because my brain is literally stuck like an old record. Those of us who are old enough to remember LPs, when there was a scratch on it and it went over and over. And sometimes when I was stoned, I really liked that. <laughs> so, Dr. Hooter goes on to say, no aspect of the brain can keep on developing and becoming increasingly complex if it has no new tasks to accomplish and no new challenges to meet. So our brain stops developing unless we give it new tasks and new challenges. Sitting in front of the TV, playing computer games, continuing to isolate ourselves, continuing to do the same things every day, stuck in our ruts and patterns, that keeps our brain stuck in its ruts and patterns, and it literally begins to atrophy, which is exactly why the Buddha taught us meditation and mindfulness, to start to bring our brains present and start to create new patterns in the brain, which has the added advantage, unknown at the Buddha's time, of course, that our brains grew. Now, you've probably read a lot, those of you who've got a few gray hairs like I, that it's important to keep our brains active. And you should do crossword puzzles and Sudoku, etc. Well, Dr. Hooter said, when, he was, when, I got, when I wasn't teaching and got to hear him, when I was teaching, I'd have about a handful of people and I would say to them, don't you want to, let's all go hear Dr. Hooter. <laughs> <clears throat> he said... That if you do a lot of crossword puzzles in Sudoku, that's great. But when you get Alzheimer's or dementia, you'll be able to still do crossword puzzles in Sudoku. What then causes our brains to develop? What causes our brains to be drawn to creating new developmental pathways? New understandings, new views, new ways of seeing each other, new ways of seeing ourselves. Are you ready? Are you present right now? Is your mind off somewhere? Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. And what generates enthusiasm? Exactly what the Buddha taught 2,500 years ago. What generates enthusiasm is two fundamental aspects of life. What we do must give us meaning it must be meaningful to us. We must be engaged in activities that arise in us, a connection with our hearts, an openness to challenge ourselves and bring meaning into our lives. And we can, of course, as we know from our practice, we can generate and cause that to arise in our minds By training our minds to go in that direction. However, there's a big however. Remember there are three jewels. The Dharma, the Buddha, and the Sangha. The Sangha. That which gives us meaning. That which gives us enthusiasm. Must be in relationship. It must be interconnected. We, our brains developed because we, unlike other creatures on the planet, are psycho, we have a psycho-social brain. We are not the biggest, baddest, meanest with the biggest claws, the biggest teeth of any animals. We don't have the ability to physically poison another. We certainly poison each other pretty effectively. And so when we began to evolve, we had to come together in groups. And we had to understand the strengths and abilities of each other so that we could figure out how to hunt together, how ultimately to farm together, how to protect each other, how to protect our young because of the long gestation. And why the long development? This was what is the most fascinating to me. The long development of our young is because their brains are so plastic. Their brains don't have greatly formed habitual patterns of behavior, like, say, a nightingale. The nightingale male sings outside the nest every night of the nightingale babies so that they get that particular nightingale song. If you put them near a rooster, their song will sound like a rooster because it's patterned to mimic that way. Our brains have much more ability to develop, so it needs a longer time, and it needs to be psychosocial. It's in relationship. It's how we learn to talk. We don't learn to talk by mimicking. Mama, Dada, have meaning in relationship. So we learn that word. I'm holding my little two-year-old granddaughter, and we're looking out at a bird, and I say, bird. This was before she was two, obviously. She can say that now. I say, bird. And we are connected. That connection has meaning to us both. She hears that sound, and she learns bird. That's the way we learned. Unfortunately, that doesn't work so well with the TV blaring all the time. And with four people in a family and all four of them on their own TV or their own computer. Which is why we're getting an increase of random violence and craziness and dis- disconnection in our social and political discourse. Why? Because people find meaning connected meaning in those kind of destructive behaviors. We must have meaning, we must have relationship, and we're not skilled enough, we haven't developed our brains enough to understand the value of having it in a peaceful way. So, just as the Buddha taught us, neuroscience is now proving that whatever we use our brains for, that's how we'll develop. If we incline our minds towards the Brahma-Viharas, towards loving-kindness, sympathetic joy, equanimity, compassion, that's how our brains will develop. If we incline our minds towards watching violent movies and television shows, and yelling and screaming and being caught in arguments and adhering to our views with such firmness that we cut ourselves off from the people in our lives, that's the way our brains will develop. And here's the bad news. Dr. Hunter writes, and because later on it becomes increasingly difficult to get off of these well-established highways, And boy, am I learning that as I age. The decision a person makes concerning how and for what purpose she uses her brain is one that she should only make with a great deal of circumspection and care. You have a choice beginning right now today to get this. That our brains are plastic, that they develop according to the way we use them. They are not fixed. And in fact, Dr. Hutter said in in Austria, this hasn't even been written up. It's so cutting edge in neuroscience. (coughs) Excuse me. We actually change our DNA. And there are receptors in our genetic codes that turn on or off depending upon how we use our brain, which is why it's such a struggle for doctors to cure cancer, for example. Because it's not just the gene you inherited, it's whether that gene gets turned on or off. And how we use our brain is what turns them on or off. So the more you incline your mind towards the negativity and the violence and the separateness that are in our culture and in your hearts, the more you incline your mind to seeing people the way you've always seen them and to hearing them the way you've always heard them, the deeper those grooves become and the harder it is to get out of them. That's why practice is so crucial to us. And that's why it's such a gift. Why should we take the trouble to embark on this difficult path? It's an interesting question. Why should we try to empathize with others and increase our sensitivity, and, and be able to modulate our inner and outer worlds as precisely and carefully as we need in order to develop our brains this way? This is Dr. Hunter's answer to that question. If you take a difficult path, you begin to use your brain in a significantly more complex way multifaceted and intense fashion than someone who complacently remains until her last gasp where she has either ended up accidentally or been dumped by the push and pull of circumstances. And hear this carefully because this absolutely blew my mind and I hope it will blow yours. The type and intensity of brain use determines how many connections are built up among the billions of nerve cells in it, what patterns of neuronal connectivity become stabilized, and how complex a fashion those neuronal connective patterns interconnect with others. Thus, in making a decision about how and for what purposes you are going to use your brain You're also making a decision about what kind of brain you're going to end up with. Our brain is that plastic. The decisions we make on using our brain determine the kind of brain we end up with, which determines the way we see the world, which determines whether we see the world as an interconnected, relational, quantum excuse me quantum reality which determines whether we can generate enthusiasm which brings meaning which brings connection which brings the ability to have joy loving kindness compassion and empathy into the world and that's what all of us in this room who are pulled to and connected to the very arduous and challenging path of mindfulness practice. That's how we, that's the life that we are given to live, to have an impact on the craziness that's swirling all around us. We might not be in a position of power to influence greatly the direction of where the planet is going. But the more we fall into despair, which I certainly do from time to time, the more we fall into despair, the fewer the opportunities we have to generate the kind of brain that will enable us to generate in each of our connections, in each of our interactions, the compassion and empathy and connection and meaning that will inspire that one person, or those five people. What an extraordinary opportunity we have every day to inspire ourselves through our practice and then give that gift. And we never know how many people we have touched by just touching one person or ten. And our choice is pretty depressing because if we allow, to the degree we allow ourselves to stay stuck, adhering to our views, holding tightly to our views, holding on to them, that sixth root of dispute that the Buddha taught about, the more tightly we hold on to it, The more we kill off our brain, the more it shrinks and doesn't develop. And our brain has the capacity, unlike what we've been taught, and this is the good news for all us gray-haired folks, it doesn't stop developing unless we stay stuck to the degree that we challenge ourselves and take the arduous, difficult path of forcing ourselves, if we need to, into new patterns of behavior. And it can't be just walking down the stairs backwards or doing crossword puzzles. <laughs> Remember, it has to be activity that generates, that comes from enthusiasm based on what gives us meaning with a shared Intention or attention, relational shared activities that have meaning for us, that's what causes our brains to grow. So we can't develop by ourselves. And look at us all here this morning. I know you were coming to hear Gil, and I got the benefit of that, but I'm really excited about it. (laughs) Because here we are, having the opportunity of an incredible sangha like this. Activities that clearly have meaning. Activities that are clearly shared. Activities (laughs) that clearly come from a shared intention and attention, are all available here. And this isn't the only place, but they're certainly available here. For these, to grow our brains in this way, we need other people. And we need other people and we need to have an emotional relationship with those people because that's where the meaning comes from. That's where the connection comes from. We need to learn and challenge ourselves to open our hearts to those other people because love creates connection and connection creates shared intention and shared intention is what's necessary to grow our brains. So the more we open our hearts, the more we find ourselves vulnerable and open and connected to others, the more we share what makes what is meaningful to us, the more enthusiastic and joyful we are in sharing that the better our brains are. Such a deal. (laughs) Billy Collins is uh, one of my other favorite poets. This is entitled Aimless Love. This morning, as I walked along the lake shore, I fell in love with a wren. And later in the day, with a mouse, the cat had dropped under the dining room table. In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress still at her machine in the tailor's window and later for a bowl of broth, steam rising like smoke from a naval battle. This is the best kind of love, I thought, without recompense, without gifts or unkind words, without suspicion or silence on the telephone, the love of the chestnut the jazz cap and one hand on the wheel. No lust, no slam of the door, the love of the miniature orange tree, the clean white shirt, the hot evening shower, the highway that cuts across Florida. No waiting, no huffiness or rancor, just a twinge every now and then for the wren who had built her nest on a low branch overhanging the water and for the dead mouse still dressed in its light brown suit but my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod, ready for the next arrow. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself standing at the bathroom sink, gazing down affectionately at the soap. (laughs) So patient and soluble. So at home and its pale green soap dish, I could feel myself falling again as I felt its turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. Bless us all. Let's sit for a moment. So there's time for a couple of questions, if someone has a question or a comment. Yes, over here. Hi. Hi. Good to see you. Right over here, Linda. Uh Thank you. I am what you would call a, a Buddhist psychotherapist. And I, I have a question, uh, a general question relating to why so often I find in those practicing Buddhism that the assumption is that disconnection or disassociation may be because of as you mentioned, primal limbic system fear is interpreted as the way the proper practice. So it's certainly my experience also. It was my experience in my own practice. I think it's I think it's because we initially believed that going inside is the practice and we initially believe and many of us certainly i was because of the chaos of my life and my own inability to interact and connect successfully it was safer inside and so i found myself seeking refuge and as I've developed and as my practice has developed I've found that the very purpose I've begun to understand that what the Buddha taught about the Brahma-viharas in particular and the Sangha in general that's the direction that the practice leads us it's a developmental process I believe and It's particularly important, obviously, based on these neuroscience studies, for us to see that that developmental process of beginning to open our heart and beginning to open ourselves to connection and to others, grows our brain. So, see it as a, we're taking baby steps in the beginning and as we're ready those steps get stronger and we get stronger and we start to look around and see. And that's why you're all here. Thank you. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's some way we can have like a volunteer fair here for all the people who are working on Maybe kind of by could get together. So she's asking about uh, a sort of a volunteer f- fair where pe- people who were working on different projects could present their projects at some booths, I assume, and there could be more connection and relationship about what everyone's doing. I'm sure that those who are in the leadership here will listen to that. Sounds like a nice idea, and. One that uh, perhaps you would like to get involved in helping to make happen. So other people could plug in. Yes. Yes. Sounds great. You know the problem about bringing up a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Go for it. One more question. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes. Yes, she just asked the name of the author. It's Gerard, we would pronounce it Gerald, Hooter. H-U-T-H-E-R, H-U-T-H-E-R. The name of the Billy Collins poem is Aimless Love. I forget what collection it's from. Unfortunately, I didn't make a note. Thank you all very much. It was quite a delight to be here. And I hope that my enthusiasm, you will take it home with you and share it with others.